Well, good morning and welcome to this teaching on the C4 principle. This is a continuation of the study of the book, The C4 Principle. Uh, those of you that have been in it know that we've been through the first few chapters, Thinking Christianly, Good Works Defined Biblically. We've explained the C4 Principle from Scripture, and we've illustrated with about six different texts of Scripture that use the C4 Principle to direct people into alignment with the will of God. And so we're getting ready to talk about application and so I've got a little section here called Concepts to Facilitate Application. And the reason I have this section is because my own experience teaching and uh, both clients and other people uh, this principle, I find most people just don't really appreciate it when it gets to the workplace. And the reason for it is the mindset tends to, to become very secular, even among those who profess to know Christ. They think like the world when it comes to the workplace. And I think to a large degree it's because of the dualism that's been in the, in the culture for so long that as management theory has developed uh, over the last 150 years, it's largely developed independent of Christian thinking. Now, that's not totally true, but the, generally the pundits, the leaders in it, uh, tended to be secular and even the Christians that were in it when they would go to their churches to get guidance on how to think about organizational behavior from a Christian worldview, the church leaders didn't know what to tell them because they had never studied scripture from that perspective. So largely the development of modern management theory, modern leadership theory as we know it today, organizational behavior as we know it today, has developed without much Christian influence. So it's hard. It's not it's not natural for us to think about God being engaged in organizational behavior. Uh, I teach this to college students, and when I begin to bring this point up to them and start talking to them about the point of an organization is to discern the will of God, you should see the looks on the faces of these Bible students. They have never heard anything like that before. That is totally foreign to them. Generally, when they think about the will of God, they're thinking about church work. They're not thinking about you know, going out there and building an organization that God has called you to build. Really? Do you do that? So it's, it's really uh, it's difficult for them. And it takes them a long time to really kind of get settled in their mind that this really could be true. So this is the reason I've added this chapter is there's such a block in our mindset about a number of truths that makes it difficult for us to really receive this principle and, and value it as a divine principle to guide us into alignment with God in how we function organizationally. Now, it's sad to me that the church leaders don't see this because churches are really organizations. There are two or more people who have come together to accomplish a vision, hopefully a divinely ordained vision, and they and hopefully they would begin to get it that God has ordained principles to guide us in how to do everything in life, including how to function in organizations, including local churches. Sadly, that just is for an idea today. We don't really get that. Uh, I rarely find church leaders that are hungry to know this truth. And so uh, it's it's kind of a sad state of affairs right now, 
but I'm grateful that you are willing to engage and you will try to study and learn. And I'm going to try to take you to scripture and help you understand what I think scripture is telling us about organizational behavior. So some things that will help you in this process, well, four key concepts that we want to talk about today. First of all, Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And I know that most, if not all of you agree that that's true. So I want to talk a little bit more about how to make that even more real to us. I think most of us can give lip service to it. It's hard to really embrace it and really truly embrace it. Uh, second one is the meta narrative. Again, another concept that we generally don't think about. We generally think of Christianity in terms of getting a ticket to heaven, then go live the way you want to live. Go live, quote, the good life. Go live the American dream. Go go work hard and make money and retire and, and play golf and do whatever you want to do. Uh, that's, that's not the meta narrative that, that is, uh, just humanistic living. And that seems to pass for okay living in most Christian communities. The third thing we'll talk about is the great commission, which to me has been greatly distorted and is a continued great torment to the cause of Christ today. Uh, it's used to justify a lot of things, uh, some of which I have no doubt the Holy spirit is using, but I think a lot of it. It's just we are wasting time, talent, and treasure, and when we stand before the Lord to give an account for what we've done, we're not going to have much, much goods to say. We're not going to be giving him works that align with him. They're going to be basically man-made works that will burn up. So we want to understand the truth about the Great Commission, and finally, we want to understand the tenses of salvation. Salvation is not an event. It is a process, but we generally think about it and treat it like it's an event. So let's just jump in here and take a look at these four concepts and how they infect our worldview and how we think about the C4 principle and how to use it biblically. So first one here, Jesus is Lord. He is Lord in Christ. When the first ecclesia occurs, on, on Acts 2, this is the birth of the New Testament ecclesia, the birth of the new covenant. Uh, this happens in Acts chapter 2. It happens through an event where there's a supernatural manifestation of the Holy Spirit that uh, was explained by Peter in light of Old Testament prophecy. There are, the people that are gathered together on that day are in Jerusalem. Uh, there's a mixture, uh, you know, in terms of the where these people live. They are probably largely ethnic Jews, but many of them live different parts of the world because of the dispersion that happened some, you know, five, six hundred years before. The dispersion happened because the, the people of God in the Old Testament were unfaithful to the covenant. And God told them, if you're unfaithful to the covenant, you will be punished. And you'll be punished by losing your kingdom and being dispersed. So that's what the dispersion is. So on this day, on Pentecost, about 50 days after Jesus had been crucified, uh, by these same people, by the way, they're gathered together to celebrate this feast. This is one of the high, a high feast uh, in the Israel, the, the Jewish customs of the day. So they're there gathered, and all of a sudden this manifestation shows up of these Galileans who everybody knew Galileans were not wise people. They were stupid people. They were, they were from the other side of the track. Nobody respected them. But all of a sudden, they're speaking in these languages that these people 
who are part of the dispersion, they're ethnic Jews that live in these various other places. They speak these foreign languages as well as they speak uh, they speak the, the Jewish language. So they're there for the Jewish festival because they're very committed Jews, highly biblically literate, and they are honoring the Lord to the best of their ability. And so the Holy Spirit shows up to them, and he manifests through a most un, unexpected way. And now everybody's confused. What does this mean? So Peter stands up and says, let me explain to you what's going on here. And he starts now connecting what they're experiencing and what they had experienced with Old Testament prophecy. So he first talks about, well, this is what Joel talks about. And then he talks about what David talked about, both in terms of the lordship of Christ and the resurrection from the dead. And he draws it all to a conclusion in one verse. So this is uh, the first message, the first message ever given, at first Christian message. And it probably took less than 10 minutes to give, and it had one point. Here's the point, Acts 2, 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. Remember, he's talking to the people that crucified Jesus. You crucified him. God has made him both Lord and Christ. Now, what we do at the end of a message, we'll, <clears throat> we give our conclusion, and then we give an invitation. Peter did not give an invitation. He didn't do anything. He just shut up. Now, that's so foreign to us. This does not fit our pictures at all because we're used to trying to cajole people into making a profession of faith. Peter had enough wisdom to know you don't cajole people. You present them truth. If the Holy Spirit convicts them, they will ask you for more. So in verse 37, they were convicted and they asked, what shall we do? And then Peter responded. So that's a picture right there. We should be looking for the invitation to share. Don't be quick to go out there and try to cajole people, let them ask. But in this text here, the point I'm trying to make right now is the reality that to unlock the Old Testament scripture, there was one thing the Jewish people needed. They were all highly biblically literate, unlike today. Most of the people that show up at my Christian gathering on Sunday know very little of scripture. But this group is highly biblically literate, they are very committed because they've sacrificed their safety, their, their uh, potential resources, their ability to earn money, spent money to travel long distances, which was very hard in those days, to be part of the festivals, the Jewish festivals. They, most of them probably were there for the Passover, and they waited 50 days for Pentecost. So they've been there for maybe two to three months. Now think about that, being off your job for two to three months, I mean no income, and you're spending money, and you have a very difficult journey getting to and from that took weeks and was very dangerous. These are very committed people, and they're highly biblically literate. So all they have to know is one thing. All they need to know is Jesus is Lord and Christ. Boom, that's it. Now all of the Old Testament prophecies about the Christ open up, all the prophecies dealing with the king, the royal you know, destiny of David 
and someone in his seed would be ruling. All those became became not not necessarily clear, but all of a sudden you're you've got a way to see it that you never had before, and so revelation has come at a new level for the Jewish people, and they can see hopefully with metaphysical awareness as never before. So this is the first key. Jesus is Lord and Christ. Typically today, we're quick to view him as Christ, our Savior, but we're not quick to recognize he is Lord. In fact, I've heard people say, I thought lordship was optional. Sorry, I don't know where to go in scripture to tell you that lordship is optional. If you truly know Christ, you know him as Lord and Christ, both. I love the way he puts it here. Then let all the house of Israel know. And this word know here is a command. It's an imper- it's imperative mood. It's also the present tense active voice, meaning it's your responsibility. And it's a continuing responsibility. It's a command to know this. And then he tells them you can know it with certainty. Now that to those that were Greek trained was uh, was probably perked their interest because the Greeks knew uh, the, the issue of certainty was a big challenge. How do you know anything for certain? Well, Peter's making the point that you can know this for certain. You may not know hardly anything else for certain, but you can know this for certain. So that's what he's saying here. And that's the point of this first message. So we've got to get that. Jesus is Lord in Christ. The next thing that we need to get clear on is the meta narrative. The meta narrative is the story of history. We are in a story of history. An atheist will tell you that they don't believe in meta narratives. Of course, they're lying to you. I hope you know that that atheism is absolutely, totally false. And in fact, atheists even know that there is a God. There's no such thing as a real atheist. That's what Paul tells us at the end of Romans 1, when he points out that all atheists know they will give an account for their lives. If they know they're going to give an account for the life, they have to give an account to someone. Who would that be? That can only be a transcendent being that we would call God. So they know that, but yet they deny it. And they try to tell you, claim to you that they're atheists. You need to know anybody making that claim is a is in big deception themselves, and they're trying to deceive you. Don't be deceived. There's no such thing as a real atheist. These are all false people. They're not real really, truly atheists. They are people that are trying to deny Christ and repress the truth. So what they will tell you also is there are no meta narratives. They don't believe in any meta narratives. That history is just random events. Well, hopefully you can immediately say that's not true. History is not random events. You know, events lead to consequences and those consequences that lead up to other consequences. Things happen historically. There are Every day is connected to the day before in some way. So there is a story of history, and it begins in Genesis 3.15 with the Protevangelum, where in the judgment to the serpent, God says, I will put hostility or enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. So the seed of, of the serpent stands for the spirit of, of the kingdom of darkness. The seed of the woman stands for the kingdom of light. So this is war between two seeds that Dennis talks about. And this is the starting point for the meta narrative. And then he tells us that what's going to happen. It doesn't matter how long this meta narrative goes on, but in the end, the seed of the woman will strike the head of the seed of the serpent, which will be a fatal blow 
which means final judgment will come. But in the meantime, the seed of the serpent will strike the heel of the seed of the woman, meaning there'll be some victories they'll have along the way, but they will not be sustainable. In the end, the victory belongs to the Lord. We just don't know how long this story will go on. Now, the next verse, I'm going to let you read that on your own. It's just Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. All this is God saying, I define the meta narrative. I define when it starts, when it ends. I define everything that happens in it. It's all about me. He's making it clear he is sovereign. He's in charge. Now, I've also got some imagery up here that's helpful. Uh, this is a way to think about the scripture and what's going on in the midst of what we're living in right now. There is a creation which was the beginning of all time. Before, prior to that, it was just we don't know how to talk about it. We don't know how to talk about a timeless existence. We only know how to talk about existence with time. So we don't, we don't know how to imagine that. We don't have anything to compare it to. But prior to creation, there was no time. So time starts at creation. There is a fall in Genesis 3, the third chapter. So we have in Genesis 1 and 2 a sense of what the way God's intent was in creation which should be huge clues for how we to live. The fall now impairs our ability and God's mercy and forbearance of, of judgment enables him to execute this meta narrative of redemption. If God did not forbear his judgment, we would not exist. Sin would have been dealt with completely when Adam and Eve fell. But as it was, they fell spiritually, their physical death, was pronounced, but it, the execution was deferred, and because it was deferred, they multiplied, and we exist. We are their heirs. So this meta-narrative redemption, it makes room for the human race to grow and develop. We still have the mandate from creation to be, to be his ruling agents. That's what the Genesis 1 tells us, why he made it mankind to be his ruling agents. But the meta-narrative redemption reveals that a fallen, fallen humans unempowered by God, can never, never fulfill the creation mandate well. And part of that meta narrative is to set us up to know that we have to be redeemed. We have to be regenerated. We have to be divinely empowered to be able to obey the creation mandate. This is what Jesus did. So when we come to Christ, we are empowered for the first time in history as New Testament Christians to be able to obey the creation mandate since the fall, we've never been able to do that in our fallen state, but now we can do it through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. This is what we are called to do. We are redeemed now to play a role in God's work assignment. So you, for example, uh, Ephesians 8 through 10, which is a very clear explanation of the gospel, where you've been saved you've been by grace through faith in Christ alone, and this not a human work, you know, if it was a human work, you would have grounds for boasting, but you don't. It's not a human work. Faith is not a human work. Faith is a response to the Holy Spirit regenerating you and empowering you to express it. And then he says in verse 10, because, for, the reason that God has done this is because he has a work assignment for you in the meta narrative, and he's prepared you to do it, and now he's empowered you to do it. And so that's what life is. Life is now moving into our work assignment in the meta narrative. And we will probably transition into the presence of the Lord prior to the end 
of the meta narrative of redemption, but the meta narrative will end with the return of Christ, the final judgment, and then we will have a new creation. So this is the big story of what's going on in the sense of time. Now, when we get to existence without time, we have just no way to connect to that. That is so beyond us, we can't even begin to fathom that. We use the word infinity, but we can still imagine something about infinity. But when you get to no time at all, that is totally different, and we have no way to relate to that. But we live in a meta narrative now to serve the purpose of God. That's the main point. When you recognize that God is a work assignment in your meta narrative, then you ask the question, well, how do I find that work assignment? Well, the way you find it is through principles like the C4 principle. You discover that you, as you find what you have C4 to do, you're finding where you line up with what God has called you to do. The third thing we, we are confused about is the Great Commission. Uh, we can spend a lot of time on this, and I, I would just encourage you to read what I've written on that as a starting point to your own learning about it. But I'm going to try to synthesize it for the sake of time into a fairly quick teaching here. This whole term, Great Commission, came about probably in the 18th century. I, I can't get a real clear picture on it, but many people attribute it to a Lutheran, um, a Lutheran priest named Baron Justinian von Welz. And I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name correctly because I don't know how to speak German and pronounce those hard guttural pronunciations they have. Anyway, supposedly he is the first one that began to associate Matthew 28, 18 to 20, 20 with what was called a Great Commission. Now, in the early, early part of the 18th century, the, um, we have the revivalists coming up and what we call the Great Awakening begins. And there was a debate early on between Whitfield and Wesley. George Whitfield was a very godly man from, from the uh, Europe, and he came to the United States, and, and he taught as part of the Great Awakening, and so did John Wesley, another man from Great Britain. Both of them taught in, in Great Britain and Europe as well as in the United States. They were friends. Whitfield viewed um, <clears throat> Scripture as telling us that God would choose us. We don't choose God. He chooses us, and we don't have the power in and of ourselves to believe in Christ. We have to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Wesley did not agree. And there are reasons why, largely, I think Wesley was jealous because Whitfield was a great orator and Wesley was not. Whitfield could draw a crowd and mesmerize a crowd with his voice. Wesley could not. So Wesley was not having the success that Whitfield was drawing crowds and getting people to make a profession of faith. So he came up with an idea. And the idea was to bring in emotionalism and to bring in other ways to appeal. And he began to convince himself that people could choose in and of themselves. They didn't need divine empowerment to choose Christ. So if people could choose, we just need to convince them to choose. And so he began to move that direction in his thinking. He and Whitfield clashed. And Wesley respected Whitfield and wanted to accommodate him in some way. So he came up with a new doctrine, and the new doctrine he called prevenient grace. Prevenient grace had never been articulated by any church figure before that I'm aware of. It starts right here with Wesley, and prevenient grace basically says that man is given grace from God to choose, but it's man's choice. 
And Whitfield, of course, looked at that and said, that's not what scripture says. And he could cite numerous texts. For example, Jesus told his disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And in other places, there's no one comes to the Father unless they're comes to Christ unless they're drawn by the Father. And Paul in Romans 3 is very clear. No one seeks God, no, not one, meaning in ourselves, in and of ourselves, we don't seek God. We have to be empowered to seek God. So Whitfield had strong biblical case for what he what he stood for. Wesley did not. But nevertheless, Wesley was the younger. Whitfield eventually kind of faded, and Wesley's view prevailed. And so today we're largely impacted by the Wesleyan view. The Wesleyan view is that we can convince people to come to Christ and that's what we should do. And now we've taken that thinking to Matthew 28 and we have twisted Matthew 28 to, to mean we're supposed to go and disciple the world, meaning go evangelize the world, and we can convince people to accept Christ. And other texts are brought in to support this, such as in, in Matthew 24, where it talks about the gospel we were heard in all the world, and then the end will come. So people feel responsible to do that, to bring about the end of, and to bring the return of Christ. So you have that kind of thinking going on. And that's why this particular text in Matthew 28 got the label, the Great Commission. I hope you can, you know, have some heartburn over this because that's this is not what the text says. First of all, they're not interpreting the text correctly. It doesn't say go make disciples. It doesn't really say all nations. That's the translation I've got up here to illustrate. Even the translators of the Bible have gotten sucked into this thinking. So they're translating it in a way that fits the the popular narrative. The word nations there is actually the word ethnos which means ethnic groups. It says, go and make disciples of all ethnicities. This means Jews and Gentiles. It doesn't mean you travel to geographical nations. That's not what he's saying. It's all ethnicities. That would be a major issue that would, be, would come up in the book of Acts and be covered in the book of Acts. So we twist this thing, make disciples convert, makes ethnicities, nations, and you wind up with something different. And then you ignore one of the major things. It says to baptize them, so we're quick to baptize them. But then it says to teach them to observe everything that Jesus commanded. So when I start talking to people that have the Wesleyan view, I, one of the things I want to know is what are these commands he's talking about here? And the best they can generally do is come up with two commands. I said, you think that's it? You think it's just two commands? You know, the, the Bible is full of commands that are authoritative for us. And until you can see that as God's revelation and has authority over us, you don't really see what the commands of Jesus are. So they misunderstand the commands of Jesus. They misunderstand discipleship. They misunderstand ethnicities. So they just a really distorted text way they see this to come to their conviction that this is the what is called popularly called today the great commission the true gate commission has to be the very first commission the reason that we are here we are here as god's ruling agents if you can't see that you don't understand why god created his universe and why he created man so when you properly label the great commission Genesis 1, 26 through 28, as you should, and realize that's what it's all about, being God's ruling agents, serving his purpose. Then you see Matthew 28, 18 through 20 as supportive. It supports in the sense that 
what the Old Testament reveals that is that in our fallen state, we could never obey Genesis 1, 26 through 28. But in our now redeemed, regenerate state where we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, we can now begin to obey the creation mandate at a level unprecedented since the fall. So this is uh, this connects Matthew 28 with 18 through 20. This is supportive. It's a discipleship mandate that makes enables people to obey the true Great Commission of being God's ruling agents on earth. So that's, to me, the correct way to understand this. If you don't understand this, you will never value work. You'll, you'll only think, well, you'll value is evangelism. And everything else will be second class. This, this this feeds and supports Greek dualism when you think this distorted view of Great Commission. When you see it correctly, that promotes holism because now we are holistically called to every aspect of life and to be God's ruling agents in every area, whether it's the workplace, the family, whether it's uh, the ecclesia, it's public policy, society, science, education, Healthcare, everything, human beings empowered by the Holy Spirit are God's ruling agents wherever they're assigned and to whatever level of authority they are given. So hopefully you can hear the power of that. When you understand that, you know, I need to know how to find my workplace assignment because that's where I'm commissioned by God to work, to labor to worship him, honor him, glorify him, and obey him as his disciple in that calling. So you've got to get the right gate commission right. The last thing you've got to get right is you need to understand what salvation is. It is not an event. There are events in the process, but it is a process. There are three major tenses of salvation that scripture reveals. In other words, Scripture talks about salvation in the past, present, and future tenses, all three. So let's just look a, a few verses here. Ephesians 2.8, I've already quoted that to you. For you are saved by grace through faith. That you see saved is past tense. You are saved. In other words, when he's talking to them, that's already happened. You are saved. He's talking about something that's already happened. The next tense is sanctification. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, said this, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you've, you've always obeyed, so now also not only in my presence but even in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out is in the present tense. It's continuous action. You are working out your salvation with fear and trembling. You say, wait a minute, I'm saved. Well, yes, and if you are saved, you're now beginning the process of being saved. You're working out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. There is this mystery of synergism where we are cooperating with the Holy Spirit in the process of sanctification. We're not co-equals. He's, he's totally in control of it, but we have a responsibility to cooperate with him. And that's one of the mysteries of Christianity, how that works. Nevertheless, we see in texts like this that that is indeed the case. And the third tense is glorification. This has to do when you complete your life and you transition into the presence of God, the fullness of sanctification will finally be completed. Sanctification is never completed until we transition. And that's called glorification. 
and you see some examples of, of this showing up. 1 Peter 1, 5, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. A salvation ready to be revealed. It's not been fully revealed. It's going to be fully revealed in the last time. There's some sense in which salvation is future. Or you can look this uh, Acts 14, 22, where Paul is telling some of his early disciples, it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Meaning you're not in it fully yet. To fully enter it, you have to go through many hardships. So it begins speaking of a culmination of sanctification, and we view that as happening when we transition through physical death. So those are the three tenses the scripture gives us. Now I'm going to give you one text. I don't have it on the screen, but I'm going to read it to you. Second Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14, where you see all three tenses together. So just listen carefully as I read this. But we ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God has chosen you for salvation, has chosen you, past tense, through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth, present tense. He called you to this through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ future tense. So you can see past, present, future here in one text. So you might enjoy that. So again, that's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. So I'm going to just summarize here with an exercise. We're going to discuss this here in just a few minutes. We're going to explain and apply each of these principles. So I want you to think about which one of these principles most struck me. Uh, Maybe it was the most uncomfortable. Maybe it was the most challenging. Whatever it was, I want you to be able to try to explain it. And if you can't, we'll help you try to explain it. And then I want you to talk about how to apply that truth. How does that truth change you, transform you, and bring you into more complete alignment with the will and ways of God? So may we have much grace to wrestle with this truth today in Jesus' name. Amen.